Hello. Hello. And welcome to Infinite Cast. Part 20, maybe? Sure. Who part, can let's say? say part 20. Yeah. Uh, here we are. It's fucking Friday night. And we're ready to party. party. We're ready to party. Friday, Friday. Got to get down on Friday. We got our brand new orange plastic bong, and we're waiting for the Canadian theater dresser to deliver a fat stack of marijuana. Waiting for the siren to call. <laughs> wait, wait. But if you could stack. Wait, you know how in um, Japan you grow watermelons in cubes? Yeah, they should grow weed in cubes. They should grow weed in like perfect cubes. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, I am drinking a uh, Caucasian. Nice ASMR. A uh, white Russian. And we are on a time limit because I just placed an order for cheesesteaks. So Uh-oh. let's see if we can get in this whole segment before our cheesesteaks come. Let's go. You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. We've moved on. We're in a sort of a, we're a literary, extra literary, than usual phase in this book. We just left Hal's uh, um, essay about Hawaii Five-0, yes. hero of inaction. And now we're moving on to... Enormous electrolysis-rashed journalist Helen Steepley's only putative, putative? Putative. Putative, putative published article before beginning her soft profile on Phoenix Cardinals punter Orin J. Incandenza. Okay. And her only putative published article to have anything overtly to do with good old metropolitan Boston. 10th August in the year of the Depend Adult Undergarment, Four years after optical theorist, entrepreneur, tennis academician, and avant-garde filmmaker James Owen Condensa took his own life by putting his head in a microwave oven. Did you know that that's how he killed himself? I believe that is mentioned before in this book. All right. Moment Magazine has learned that the tragic fate of the second North American citizen to receive a Jarvik 9 exterior artificial heart has, sadly, been kept from the North American people. The woman, a 46-year-old Boston accountant with irreversible restenosis of the heart, responded so well to the replacement of her defective heart with a Jarvik 9 exterior... What is IX? I'm sorry. I'm nine. so stupid. Jarvik's 9, That's, yeah. Okay, good. Whoa. Confidence. Uh, Jarvik 9 exterior artificial heart that within weeks she was able to resume the active lifestyle she had so enjoyed before stricken, pursuing her active schedule with the extraordinary prosthesis portably installed in a stylish Etienne Egnier purse. The heart's ventricular tubes ran up to shunts in the woman's arms and ferried life-giving blood back and forth between her living, active body and the extraordinary heart in her purse. Her tragic, untimely, and some might say cruelly ironic fate, however, has been the subject of the all-too-frequent silence needless tragedies are buried buried beneath when they cast the callous misunderstanding of public officials in the negative light of public knowledge. It took the sort of searching and fearless journalistic doggedness readers have come to respect in moment to unearth the tragically negative facts of her fate. The 46-year-old recipient of the Jarvik 9 exterior artificial heart was actively window shopping in Cambridge, Massachusetts' fashionable Harvard Square when a transvestite purse snatcher, a drug addict with a criminal record Mm -hmm. all too well known to public officials, bizarrely outfitted in a strapless cocktail dress, (laughs) spike heels, tattered feather boa, Mm -hmm. and auburn wig, brutally tore the life-sustaining purse from the woman's unwitting grasp. The active, alert woman gave chase to the purse-snatching, quote, woman for as long as she could, 
plaintively shouting to passers-by the words, Stop her! She stole my heart! (laughs) On the fashionable sidewalk crowded with shoppers, reportedly shouting repeatedly, She stole my heart! Stop her! In response to her plaintive calls, tragically, misunderstanding shoppers and passers-by merely shook their heads at one another, smiling knowingly at what they ignorantly presumed to be yet another alternative lifestyles relationship gone sour. A duo of Cambridge, Massachusetts patrolmen, whose names are being withheld from moments dogged queries, were publicly heard to passively quip, happens all the time, <laughs> as the victimized woman staggered frantically past in the wake of the fleet transvestite, shouting for help for her stolen heart. That the prosthetic crime victim gave spirited chase for over four blocks before collapsing onto her empty chest is testimony to the impressive capacity of the Jarvik 9 replacement procedure, was the anonymous comment of a public medical official reached for comment by moment. The drug-crazed perch snatcher, informed officials passively speculated, may have found even his hardened conscience moved by the life-saving prosthesis, the ill-gotten woman's Agnier purse revealed, which runs on the same rechargeable power cell as an electric man's razor, and may well have continued to beat and bleed for a period of time in the rudely disconnected purse. The purse snatcher's response to this conscience appears to have been cruelly striking the Jarvik 9 exterior artificial heart repeatedly with a stone or small hammer-like tool where its remains were found some hours later behind the historic Boston Public Library in fashionable Copley Square. Is medical science's awe-inspiring march forward, however, always doomed to include such tragic incidences <laughs> of ignorance and callous loss, one might ask? Such seems to be the stance of North American officials. This is a, Wallace's a allegory for Frankenstein. Yes. If indeed so, the victim's fate is frequently kept from the light of public knowledge. And the facts of the case's outcome? The 46-year-old deceased woman's formerly active alert brain was removed and dissected six weeks later by a Brigham and Women's City of Boston Hospital medical student, reportedly so moved by her terse toe-tags account of the victim's heartless fate that he confessed a moment a temporary inability to physically wield the power saw of his assigned task. That's the end of that article. Well, did I catch that correctly? That that this woman was has the same last name as one of the Canadian separatists, the victim. Uh, the victim? I don't. Did they name the victim? But isn't it in that preamble uh, that they said the subject uh, of it? No, they actually did not name. They didn't name the victim, but uh, Helen Steeply is Steeple, the writer. Right, right. Same as Hugh Steeply. The uh, so this is him being undercover as Helen, journalist for Moment okay. magazine. Yes. Okay. Great. Um, here's a small segment, which is just alphabetical tally of separatistes slash anti-ONAN groups whose opposition to interdependence slash reconfiguration is designated by RCMP and USOUS as terrorist slash extortionist in character. And so the key is Q is Quebecois, E is environmental, S is separatist, V is violent, and VV is extremely violent. Very les, violent. Les assassins de, de Fauteuil Roland is Québécois, uh, separatist, and very violent. Le Bloc Québécois is Québécois, separatist, and environmental. Calgarian pro-Canadian phalanx, which is environmental and violent. Les Fils oh yeah, Wexit. Wexit, baby. Woo. Uh, les Fils de Montcalm is Québécois and environmental. 
Les Fils de Papineau is Québécois separatist and violent. Le Front de la Libération de la Québec is Québécois separatist and very violent. And then Le Parti Québécois is Québécois separatist and environmental. Don't Great. I'm, yeah. Why sure. not? All right. Here's the meat. Here's the, the meat uh, after, after we've that, eaten those potatoes. After those amuse bouche. My bouche uh, is, is amused. This is all caps, and it's a very long title for uh, a segment. Why, though in the early days of Interlace's interneted teleputers that operated off largely the same fiber digital grid as the phone companies, the advent of video telephoning, a.k.a. videophony, enjoyed an interval of huge consumer popularity. Callers thrilled at the idea of phone interfacing both orally and facially, in parentheses, the little first-generation phone video cameras being too crude and narrow-apertured for anything much more than facial close-ups, end of parentheses, on first-generation teleputers that at that time were little more than high-tech TV sets, though of course they had that little intelligent agent hum- <laughs> homuncular icon that would appear at the lower right of a broadcast-slash-cable program and tell you the time and temperature outside or remind you to take your blood pressure medication or alert you to a particularly compelling entertainment option now coming up on channel like 491 or something it's like clippy Mm -hmm. or of course now alerting you to an incoming video phone call and then tap dancing with a little iconic straw boater and cane just under (laughs) (laughs) they bring this back just under a menu of possible options for response and callers did love their little homuncular icons But why, within like 16 months or five sales quarters, the tumescent demand curve for videophony suddenly collapsed like a kicked tent so that by the year of the depend adult undergarment, fewer than 10% of all private telephone communications utilized any video image fiber data transfers or coincident products and services, the average phone user deciding, U.S. phone user, deciding that she slash he actually preferred the retrograde old low-tech Bell-era voice-only telephonic interface after all. A preferential about-face that cost a good many precipitant video telephony Uh, related entrepreneurs their shirts plus destabilizing two highly respected mutual funds that that had ground floored heavily in video phone technology and very nearly wiping out the Maryland State Employees Retirement Systems Freddie Mac Fund, a fund whose administrator's mistress's brother had been an almost maniacally precipitant video phone technology entrepreneur. And but so why the abrupt consumer retreat back to good old voice-only telephoning? That's the title of this segment. That's the title of the segment. Great. The uh, answer... A lot, of, a lot of stuff in there. A lot of stuff. The answer, in a kind of trivalent nutshell, is one, emotional stress. Two, physical vanity. Three, a certain queer kind of self-obliterating logic in the microeconomics of consumer high-tech. One... It turned out that there was something terribly stressful about visual telephone interfaces that hadn't been stressful at all about voice-only interfaces. This is our current affairs episode. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Video phone consumers seemed suddenly to realize that they'd been subject to an insidious but wholly marvelous delusion about conventional voice-only telephony. Telephony? Telephony? Whichever way you want it. I like telephony, actually. Telephony? Telephony? Telephony. Sounds like a name, like Stephanie. They'd never <laughs> this noticed. This is my daughter, Telephony. This is my daughter, Telephony, and my son, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> They'd never noticed it before, the delusion. 
It's like it was so emotionally complex that it could be countenanced only in the context of its loss. Good old traditional audio-only phone conversations allowed you to presume that the person on the other end was paying complete attention to you while also permitting you not to have to pay anything even close to complete attention to her. Great point. A traditional oral-only conversation utilizing a handheld phone whose earpiece contained only six little pinholes, but whose mouthpiece, rather significantly it later seemed, contained six squared or 36 little pinholes, let you enter a kind of highway hypnotic semi-attentive fugue. While conversing, you could look around the room, doodle, find groom, peel tiny bits of dead skin away from your cuticles, compose foam pad haiku, stir things on the stove. You could even carry on a whole separate additional sign language and exaggerated facial expression type of conversation with people right there in the room with you, all while seeming to be right there attending closely to the voice on the phone. And yet, and this was the retrospectively marvelous part, even as you were dividing your attention between the phone call and all sorts of uh, idle little fugue-like activities, you were somehow never haunted by the suspicion that the person on the other end's attention might be similarly divided. During a traditional call, e.g., as you, let's say, performed a close tactile blemish scan of your chin, you were in no way oppressed by the thought that your phone mate was perhaps also devoting a good percentage of her attention to a close tactile blemish scan. It was an illusion, and the illusion was oral and orally supported. Do you pronounce things oral versus aural? I was going to ask. Is he saying oral? Uh, like a oral. I would say aural. Aural. Yeah. Is that a is that a uh, Vermont versus aural? Well, well, I would I would make a point of saying it to distinguish it from the similarly from sounding and similarly meaning but confusingly uh, not the same word oral. Uh, because you make aural yes. sounds with your oral orifices. With your oral orifices. All right, I will adjust. Uh, uh, the illusion was aural and aurally supported. I sound like like I'm from Boston. Aural. Aural. The phone line's other end's voice was dense, tightly compressed, and vectored right into your ear, enabling you to imagine that the voice's owner's attention was similarly compressed and focused, even though your own attention was not was the thing. This bilateral illusion of unilateral attention was almost infantilely gratifying from an emotional standpoint. You got to believe you were receiving somebody's complete attention without having to return it. Regarded with the objectivity of hindsight, the illusion appears irrational, almost literally fantastic. It would like it would be like being able both to lie and to trust other people at the same time. <laughs> Video tele- telephony rendered the fantasy insupportable. Callers now found they had to compose the same sort of earnest, slightly over-intense listener's expression they had to compose for in-person exchanges. Those callers who, out of unconscious habit, succumbed to fugue-like doodling or pants-crease adjustment now came off looking rude, absent-minded, or childishly self-absorbed. Callers who even more unconsciously blemish-scanned or nostril-explored looked up to find horrified expressions on the video faces at the other end all of which resulted in videophonic stress. Agreed. E- 
Even worse, of course, was the traumatic expulsion from Eden feeling of looking up from tracing your thumb's outline on the reminder pad or adjusting the old unit's angle of repose in your shorts and actually seeing your videophonic interfacee idly strip a shoelace of its gumlet as she talked to you and suddenly realizing your whole infantile fantasy of commanding your partner's attention while you yourself got to fugue doodle and make little genital adjustments was diluted and insupportable and that you were actually commanding not one bit more attention than you were paying here. The whole attention business was monstrously stressful, video callers found. Number two. And the videophonic stress was even worse if you were at all vain, i.e. if you worried at all about how you looked, as in to other people, which, all kidding aside, who doesn't? Good old oral telephone calls could be fielded without makeup, toupee, surgical prostheses, etc. Even without clothes, if that sort of thing rattled your saber... <laughs> <laughs> but for the image conscious, there was, of course, no such answer as you are in formality about visual video telephone calls, which consumers began to see were less like having the good old phone ring than having the doorbell ring and having to throw on clothes and attach prostheses and do hair checks in the foyer mirror before answering the door. But the real coffin nail for videophony involved the way callers' faces looked on their TP screen during calls. Not the callers' faces, but their own when they saw them on video. It was a three-button affair, after all, to use the TP's cartridge card's video record option to record both pulses in a two-way visual call and play the call back and see how your face had actually looked to the other person during the call. This sort of appearance check was no more resistible than a mirror. But the experience proved almost universally horrifying. People were horrified at how their own faces appeared on a TP screen. It wasn't just Anchorman's bloat, that well-known impression of extra weight that video inflicts on the face. It was worse. Even with high-end TP's high-def viewer screens, consumers perceived something essentially blurred and moist-looking about their phone faces, a shiny, pallid indefiniteness that struck them as not just unflattering, but somehow evasive, furtive, untrustworthy, unlikable <laughs> in an early and ominous interlace slash GTE focus group survey that was all but ignored in a storm of entrepreneurial sci-fi tech enthusiasm almost 60% of respondents who received visual accesses to their own faces during videophonic calls specifically used the terms untrustworthy unlikable or hard to like in describing their own visages appearances <laughs> with the phenomenally ominous 71% of senior citizen respondents specifically comparing their video faces to that of Richard Nixon during the Nixon Kennedy <laughs> debates of BS 1960. The proposed solution to what the telecommunications industry's psychological consultants termed video physiognomic dysphoria or VPD was we are we all have VPD. Everybody now, suffers a little VPD. Was of course the advent of high definition masking, and in fact, it was those on that he, he that exists. It's real. It's real. It's I, real. God he, damn it. He, he did it. He fuck. He fucking did he, it. He knew. He knew that we would that we would, that that a service like Zoom would require. Uh, hey, here's a button to make you look slightly better. And he dipped before we had to deal with it. Uh, oh my God! It was, in fact, 
Uh, in fact, it was those entrepreneurs who gravitated toward the production of high-definition videophonic imaging and then outright masks who got in and out of the short-lived videophonic era with their shirts plus solid additional nets. Mask-wise, the initial option of high-definition photographic imaging, i.e. taking the most flattering elements of a variety of flattering multi-angle photos of a given phone consumer and, thanks to existing image configuration equipment already pioneered by the cosmetics and law enforcement industries, combining them into a wildly attractive, high-def, broadcastable composite of a face wearing an earnest, slightly over-intense expression of complete attention. <laughs> that was quickly supplanted by the more inexpensive and bite-economical option of, using the exact same cosmetic and FBI software, actually casting the enhanced facial image in a form-fitting polybutylene resin mask. And consumers soon found that the high upfront cost of a permanent wearable mask was more than worth it. Considering the stress and VPD reduction benefits and the convenient Velcro straps for the back of the mask and collar's head cost peanuts. And for a couple fiscal quarters, phone slash cable companies were able to rally VPD afflicted consumers confidence by working out a horizontally integrated deal where free composite and masking services came with a video phone on the, uh, came with a video phone hookup. The high-def masks, when not in use, simply hung on a small hook on the side of a TP's phone console, admittedly looking maybe a bit surreal and discomfiting when detached and hanging there empty and wrinkled, and sometimes there were potentially awkward mistaken identity snafus involving multi-user family or company phones and the hurried selection and attachment of the wrong mask taken <laughs> from some long row of empty hanging masks. But all in all, the masks seemed initially like a viable industry response to the vanity, stress, and Nixonian facial image problem. Uh, number two, and maybe also number three. <laughs> but combine the natural entrepreneurial instinct to satisfy all sufficiently high consumer demand, on the other hand, with what appears to be an almost equally natural distortion in the way persons tend to see themselves, and it becomes possible to account historically for the speed with which the whole high-def videophonic mask thing spiraled totally out of control. <laughs> Not only is it weirdly hard to evaluate what you yourself look like, like whether you're good-looking or not, E.g., try looking in a mirror and determining where you stand in the attractiveness hierarchy with anything like the objective ease you can determine whether or not just about anyone else you know is good-looking or not. Easy, 10. Oh, of course, you are 10. Uh, but it turned out that consumers' instinctively skewed self-perception plus vanity-related stress meant that they began preferring and then outright demanding video phone masks that were really quite a lot better looking than they <laughs> themselves were in person. High-def mask entrepreneurs ready and willing to supply not just verisimilitude, but aesthetic enhancement, stronger chins, smaller eye bags, airbrushed scars and wrinkles, soon pushed the original mimetic mask entrepreneurs right out of the market. In a gradually unsubtilizing progression, Within a couple more sales quarters, most consumers were now using masks so undeniably better looking on video phones than their real faces were in person, transmitting to one another such horrendously skewed and enhanced masked images of themselves that enormous psychosocial stress began to result. 
I know we'll talk, we'll talk about this at the end, but it's just amazing the extent that we're doing exactly we're doing this, it. but just digitally. I was literally just complaining about this, uh, which we'll talk about after. Yeah. Uh, begin to result. Large numbers of phone users suddenly reluctant to leave home and interface personally with people who they feared were now habituated <laughs> to seeing their far better looking masked selves on the phone and would on seeing them in person suffer. So went the caller's phobia. The same illusion-shattering aesthetic disappointment that, e.g., certain women who always wear makeup give people the first time they ever see them without makeup. The social anxieties surrounding the phenomenon psych consultants termed optimistically misrepresentational masking, or OMM, intensified steadily as the tiny, crude, first-generation video phone camera's technology improved to where the aperture wasn't as narrow, and now the higher-end tiny cameras could countenance and transmit more or less full-body images. Certain psychologically unscrupulous entrepreneurs began marketing full-body polybutylene and urethane 2D cutouts, sort of like the headless muscleman and bathing beauty cutouts you could stand behind and position your chin on the cardboard mm -hmm. neck stump of yep. or cheap photos at the beach. Only these full-body video phone masks were vastly more high-tech and convincing looking. Once you added variable 2D wardrobe, hair and eye color options, various aesthetic enlargements and reductions, etc., costs started to press the envelope of mass market affordability, even though there was, at the same time, horrific social pressure to be able to afford the very best possible masked 2D body image to keep from feeling comparatively hideous looking on the phone. How long, then, could one expect it to have been before the relentless entrepreneurial drive toward an ever-better mousetrap conceived of the transmittable tableau, a.k.a. TT, which, in retrospect, was probably the really sharp business end of the videophonic coffin nail. With TTs, facial and bodily masking could now be dispensed with altogether and replaced with the video-transmitted image of what was essentially a heavily doctored still photograph, one of an incredibly fit and attractive and well-turned-out human being. Someone who actually resembled you, the caller, only in such limited respects as, like, race and limb number. <laughs> the photo's face focused attentively in the direction of the videophonic camera from amid the sumptuous but not ostentatious appointments of the sort of room that best reflected the image of yourself you wanted to transmit, mm -hmm. etc. The tableau were simply high-quality, transmission-ready photographs scaled down to diorama-like proportions and fitted with a plastic holder over the video phone camera, not unlike a lens cap. Mm -hmm. Extremely good-looking, but not terrifically successful entertainment celebrities, the same sort who, in decades past, would have swelled the cast list of infomercials, found themselves in demand as models for various high-end video phone tableau. Because they involved simple transmission-ready photography instead of... Sorry computer imaging and enhancement, the tableau could be mass-produced and commensurately priced, and for a brief time, they helped ease the tension between the high costs of enhanced body masking and the monstrous aesthetic pressures videophony exerted on callers, not to mention also providing employment for set designers, photographers, airbrushers, and infomercial-level celebrities hard-pressed by the declining fortunes of broadcast television advertising. Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> Number three. But there's some sort of revealing lesson here in the beyond short-term viability curve of advances in consumer technology. The career of videophony conforms neatly to this curve's classically annular shape. 
First, there's some sort of terrific sci-fi-like advance in consumer tech, like from aural to video phoning, which advance always, however, has certain un- which advance always, however, has certain unforeseen disadvantages for the consumer. And then, but the market niches created by those disadvantages, like people's stressful vein repulsion at their own videophonic appearance, are ingeniously filled via sheer entrepreneurial verve. And yet the very advantages of these ingenious disadvantaged compensations seem all too often to undercut the original high-tech advance, resulting in consumer recidivism and curve closure and massive shirt loss for precipitant investors. In the present case, the stress and vanity compensation's own evolution saw video callers rejecting first their own faces and then even their own heavily masked and enhanced physical likenesses and finally covering the video cameras altogether and transmitting attractively stylized static tableau to one another's TPs. And behind these lens cap dioramas and transmitted tableau, callers of course found that they were once again stresslessly invisible, unvainly makeup and too payless and uh, baggy-eyed behind their celebrity dioramas, once again free, since one again unseen, to doodle, blemish scan, manicure, crease check, while on their screen, the attractive, intensely attentive face of the well-appointed celebrity on the other end's tableau reassured them that they were the objects of a concentrated attention they themselves didn't have to exert. And of course, but these advantages were nothing other than the once lost and now appreciated advantages of good old Bell era blind aural only telephoning with its six and six squared pinholes. The only difference was that now these expensive, silly, unreal, stylized tableau were being transmitted between TPs on high priced video fiber lines. How much time after this realization sank in and spread among consumers, mostly via phone, interestingly, <laughs> would any microeconometrist expect to need to pass before high-tech visual videophony was mostly abandoned then? A return to good old, good old telephoning, not only dictated by common consumer sense, but actually, after a while, culturally approved as a kind of chic integrity, not Ludditism, but a kind of retrograde transcendence of sci-fi-ish high-tech for its own sake, a transcendence of the vanity and the slavery to high-tech fashion that people view as so unattractive in one another. In other words, a return to aural-only telephony became, at the closed curve's end, a kind of status symbol of anti-vanity, such that only callers utterly lacking in self-awareness continued to use videophony and tableau, to say nothing of masks. And these tacky facsimile-using people became ironic cultural symbols of tacky vain slavery to corporate PR. I gotta go get our cheesesteaks. Okay, I'll pause. Vamp. I'll vamp as Chris gets the cheesesteaks. <laughs> we'll talk about this again when he gets back but uh the the ma- it's it's so funny that it reminds me of um in the 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 book the, the time machine how the time machine is a bicycle because that is like the vehicle that like makes the most sense of their idea of a time machine it's not a, a spaceship because they have not even remotely thought of like getting to space in in the space way uh that David Foster Wallace's technological advancements and his uh, the the hardware that he describes is like so close, like it's close in sentiment, but it is so off in terms of what actually happened, which is just basically like really, really, really small 
computers with cameras. I mean, he's talking about that too, but he's he has all these special flourishes of like props and like you know the use of cameras. I actually do wonder how uh, how schooled he is in filmmaking because that's not something that I'm aware that he knows what's up. But like he's so aware of like lenses and angles and and things that maybe he dated someone who was into it. And Chris is back. I'm back. I feel like that came just like two minutes too early, just g- gauging by where you are. Alas. Um, yes. We're almost at the end. Back back into the text. Um, we're talking about these tacky people. Tacky facsimile using people became ironic cultural symbols of tacky vain slavery to corporate PR and high-tech novelty. Became the subsidized eras, tacky equivalents of people with leisure suits, black velvet paintings, Sweater vests for their poodles, electric zirconium jewelry. I'm not familiar with that one. No coat lingua scrapers and C, and cetera. <laughs> Fuck you, David. <laughs> uh, most communication consumers put their tableau dioramas at the back of a knickknack shelf and covered their cameras with standard black lens caps and now use their phones, consoles, little mask hooks to hang those new plasticine address and phone diaries specifically made with a little receptacle at the top of the binding for convenient hanging from former mask hooks. Even then, of course, the bulk of U.S. consumers remained verifiably reluctant to leave home and tell a pewter and to interface personally, though this phenomenon's endurance can't be attributed to the videophony fad per se. And anyway, the new uh, panagoraphobia served to open huge new entrepreneurial telepewterized markets for home shopping and delivery and didn't cause much industry concern. Panagoraphobia. Panagoraphobia. Are we not in this moment uh, suffering from justified panagoraphobia? I was going to say some some people aren't suffering, and perhaps they should be. Yes, but, but it, that is that is the 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 name of of what is happening. Except it's not like a, a phobic Stay response inside. to outside. It's Stay that like inside. you're literally like the outside world is is to be afraid Stay of. Stay home. Stay home. Wow. What what a, a weird description to read right now. Because the thing is, is it, it resonates super clearly with what we have to do over the last year, the, all this fucking Zoom video phoning. But, the, but if not for that, it would weirdly feel like a missed prediction, right? Because video... Yeah, because it, it has, it's pretty popular. Yeah. Vi- well, well, it was pretty I was, popular. I, no, I was going to say, you know, FaceTiming has been a thing for like a decade. Mm-hmm. But it's not like many people like often FaceTime. I would disagree. I think it's a generational thing. And I was first aware of it when I was reading about um, like XXXTentacion and Lil Peep and how oh, yeah. often they were always FaceTiming like FaceTiming people. people. Yeah, I actually think FaceTime and this is this is complete speculation because I am not 20 mm-hmm. and I never will be again. But um, I think FaceTiming is becoming more and more an approved and socially wanted uh way of communicating with each other but it's so different in the way it I, I was saying a little bit in terms of like how technology actually developed is that like david got the spirit but not the feel like right or vice versa where what basically just ended up happening is that the wide angle never happened yes. you know what i mean and obviously and i would say too that there is the how do i put this the the vanity the, and the horror at seeing oneself we, yes. What he captured in this specifically for talking to one another on the phone, I'm thinking more of in just a general sense of how social media is 
with you know selfies and Instagram stories, mm-hmm. posting images mm-hmm. of yourself, um, streaming even, mm-hmm. and how like that kind of dual like vanity and horror of oneself. Oh, I wonder what uh, how, what DFW would have thought of uh, Hassan Minaj's mobile stream. Uh, <laughs> Hassan Minaj, sorry, not Hassan Minaj. Oh, right. Hassan Piker's uh, mobile streaming unit we had in La- he's had in Las Vegas very Pemulus like in a way uh, well, you know Michael Pemulus would have been like some some uh, some streamer I don't know if I know him well enough to say that yet <laughs> but uh, do you do you turn your your self screen off when you're on Zoom calls? I've started to more I do it um, for big big group ones because I am distracted by my own image. Sorry. <laughs> like I, like any human person. I, I, will, I am tempted to do that, but I also feel fear that I will do something like embarrassing, like pick my nose or something. If I'm not a, if I don't Valid. have the, the visual reminder that I exist physically to this call. Right. That's the other thing is if you don't, if you don't see yourself, like or who, who are you? Yeah. I uh, was saying more in terms of like the masking thing, the which he again, the difference is that it's all digital technology for us versus he's talking about like physical technology. Yes. Um, but like that is all I was just watching a bunch of TikToks today and then I went and like took a shower and looked at myself in the mirror with no makeup and I was like, I look like an ancient crone. And it's because TikTok is people in like full beat makeup. But with these amazing filters. filters. Yeah, yeah. Amazing filters. filters that make them look so super cool and young. And the distance between the digital image of oneself and then when you actually reckon yep. with yourself in the mirror, it's horrifying. And he nailed it in 1996. Uh, ah! Well, the other thing, the thing that I feel like he misses, though, yeah. in terms of communication intimacy uh, is texting, which is where things, at least for our generation, mm. were going is that we it's not that we had skipped over the video videophony. It was that we had found an even more remote way than the idle like nail picking yeah. uh, 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 ability to distract on a telephone call but you don't even have to pick up the telephone you just type some shit in you could you don't even have to, yeah you 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 don't even have to not be eating on the on the phone call or whatever you know it is in some ways texting is the ultimate vision of what David Foster Wallace was trying to nail in terms of like paying attention to someone when you're on the phone with them, right? Yes. When you're texting someone, that is the only thing you're doing, unless you're driving, which you well, should do. Well, no, no. I think it's a, it's hyper disengaged because you don't need to like, you barely even have to think. You can compose a text message slowly over like 45 minutes, a word at a time. You barely have to be engaged in it. I would disagree. I th- when I'm texting, I'm very present. And when I'm you're especially when you're in the mode, disengaged. well, that, I think that's the difference between <laughs> you and I. Well, it's, well, it depends. If I'm having a conversation with somebody, uh, like a like an excited text conversation or, or or chatting back and forth, yeah, I guess I'm engaged. But it's also like when somebody just sends you something idly that you can respond to whenever you want. Like the, it's incredibly disengaged. It's disengaged, but it is also solves in some ways the idea that he's talking about of like paying attention to someone when you're communicating with them, which mm-hmm. is that when you're on the phone, you're at a specific like space and time you, and you both have to be on the line at the same time, right? Sure. Texting, you don't necessarily have to be on the line. Yes. But people text 24 seven. The presence is constant. It's, the expectation of attention is 24, not 24 seven, but like kind point, of. You can just like stop texting. You're not on a conversation. There's at nobody what saying cost, Chris, at what cost? Yeah, I guess. I I don't know. I think it's, uh, uh, slightly more disengaged or a different level of en- it's a, di- a different level of engagement that 
but again, the, the point is the vanity that you engage in with it, and you have you are totally dis, dis, disconnected in texting. It is literally just uh, the inside of your mind that is that is being transferred. Maybe that maybe that's the thing is like if it's just the inside of your mind, that's where I feel like the most connection is. Versus once yeah. you start looking at images of yourself or the other person, or even hearing their voice. Yeah. Uh, but that I'm a I'm a textual person. I'm a I I I'm a, a lingual person. But also that Lexical. that other uh, that other sec- section or the other element to this of of a technology existing and then a, a spree of new technologies uh, popping up to solve the problem of the existing of the new mm-hmm. technology. Yes, the boom and bust of it. I yes. felt very relatable. Annular again. I I didn't pay attention to this much the first times I read this book, but he's obsessed with an- the annular shape, annular fusion, mm-hmm. the annular curve of of technology overcorrection. What's a what's a modern example of a technology that's invented and then they have to like compensate? I mean, would one example be just really really good entertainment, really good televisions, really good phones, really good ways to watch Christopher Nolan's Tenet, and then the overcorrection as well? Now you're you're getting fat on the couch, so we got to get you this Peloton, man. Yeah. And then you can watch the you can watch Christopher Nolan's Tenet while you're on your Peloton. Can you do that? Who who's stopping us? Your dad. <laughs> Yeah, um, or the wellness industry overcompensating for for capitalism. I mean, the, I honestly, <laughs> it's the it's like the filters, right? Because people like they invented this like video chatting thing, and they were like, "Oh, but the thing that we've invented this interface that allows you to share your image." Yeah, and the thing that people really want from it is the ability to change their image. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's exactly like like he predicted in there. Yeah, I mean, the real question will be with. The annular shape of what's currently going around, re Zoom, yes, is like, uh, we were, like, we were kind of forced. I mean, kind of, we were forced into this, and people took to it because they craved the interaction of interfacing with people. Yes. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how much that becomes a factor of life afterwards, and how much people will put up with it. Right. If there is an afterwards. Well, it's funny because speaking from personal experience, but the pandemic, mostly the gift of time of things where I would maybe usually be doing social activities or going to concerts or sporting events or something, uh, had more time to reconnect with people who don't live in my city. People I haven't uh, spoken to in a long time in some cases, even communicating with my sisters more than I used to. Mm -hmm. And so I am wondering is like, that that is has been enriching but when i get to go to concerts and sporting events is there going to be an overcorrection where people basically completely lose touch with anyone who isn't in their city because they are gorging on irl talking about yeah that's what i I wonder Uh, it's hard to predict it'll be interesting to see if like works that are capable of doing it this way if, if work sites allow people to just continue working remoting did i catch that he said that that would basically happen that people stopped going, going out going out and yeah. going to work yeah he he does actually completely I, I don't know if it's explicitly expressed but i do kind of remember him saying that in the in the year to the depend adult undergarment most people work from home because uh, most people from with like desk jobs don't need don't, to go to the yeah, office have, which is again mm, pretty fucking mm, prescient mm, david mm. and what do we think about helen steeply's article about the artificial heart in the purse uh, anything special there? I mean that that seems almost more 
plotty than anything, you know? Because did it's, did you realize that her her Hughes next assignment is Oren and Canenza? Yes, that, I caught that. Okay. And remember Oren was on the phone with Hal being like, Ugh, I'm so annoyed. Like I've been assigned. I'm getting profiled by some writer from Moment Magazine. I don't remember that. Yeah, but that was slipped in there real subtle. Like. So we're, we're ne- uh, weaving some of these threads together. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, poor Tony was the feather boaed uh, yes. uh, transvestite, transvestite who has murdered this poor woman. Accidentally. I'm sure just for the uh, nice bag. And then he's like, oh, damn, there's a there's a dang heart in here that. This heart's wicked gross. I love the uh, the modern update to the... Who was the woman who was murdered on the street and used as an example of the bystander effect? Kitty Genovese. Ooh, good, good pool. I would never have been able to. Uh, yeah, the the update of being like, she has my heart. She stole she my stole heart. heart. Everyone's just like, like oh boy. Uh, lover's quarrel. <laughs> great, insane lover's quarrel. Yeah, that is, that's a great guy. Boston. Uh, one thing I was thinking of while going through that uh, the essay about video videophony. Yes. Is that maybe one of the reasons that uh, DFW drives people insane when uh, as like a male signifier mm-hmm. is that there is something about his writing that is intensely literary, but he makes it look so easy. And I think that maybe one of the assumptions of both uh, your common DFW uh, fuck boy Stan yes. and the girls who fuck him mm-hmm. is that you could do it too. That it like, it it has such a like clear simple thoughts and like fairly elegant articulation, but nothing like, you know, you don't need a. Well, I guess sometimes you need a source for it, but but it it, it he it, gives he leaves context breadcrumbs yeah, it, 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 all the time it, to figure out the, even the words it that you flows don't know. and you see something like that and it seems so stream of conscious the, the essay seems so stream of consciousness that you're like listening to it and being like maybe I I mean I could probably do this mm-hmm. I took like a creative writing course. I went to grad school. I mean, I could probably shit out an infinite jest, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it, you know, it's, it, a, it's a faux casual. It has an accessibility to it. It that, does. But then you look at the sentences and you're like, this is a very, very delicately constructed yes. grammatical house that like, what, if you kick out the foundation, like none of it makes sense. Like it's, it's not just a, a clause and another Clause. Yeah, no. I mean, I I have no pretensions about my writing abilities. I mean, even half of my tweets are are if uh, with one revision could eliminate half the words. Eh, ooh, you gotta use your characters. Uh, let's, I, cause I this the fucking cheesesteak is wafting into my nostrils, mm, so I want to get I want to get to it. Uh, and plus we have to get to watching Dune. Tonight. Yes, of course. It's my birthday weekend, and it's... so I call the media shots. And having finished Dune a few weeks ago, we're going to watch David Lynch's Dune tonight. I'm very happy. It's I haven't seen Chris's that for like a decade. fucking birthday. It's my birthday weekend. Happy birthday, Chris. Uh, but just to clean up a few strands, we got a lot of messages. Uh, not a lot, but a, a, a fair amount of messages uh, last week. R.E. also, and so, the barrel story. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, pointing out some some clarifications ranging from that I think as you relayed from one person to you that uh, it might have been like a colloquial, basically early copy pasta like email chain that it was going around that that yeah. he basically lifted plagiarized, yeah. Uh, but also that it was that connects very directly to an almost immediate a previous chapter. Uh, the Lyle is Lyle the sweat lodge guy. Lyle's the yeah the uh, gym. His 
uh, admonition to not lift more than your own weight. Yes, because otherwise you'll you'll pull yourself to the weight versus it, pulling the weight, weight to, you. to you. Yes, and so there is resonance uh, there about lifting your own weight, and that the don't do it yourself mm-hmm. comes through. So, yeah, uh, what could have been a one off turns out to be much more deeply integrated. Oh, and then so someone else said that. Um, and I don't think this is a spo- spoilerino, but that this the guy, the injured guy, might low key show up at Ennett House like very briefly. <laughs> we still have not had a scene inside Ennett House. And is oh, that like the main place that this book takes besides place? Besides ETA, yeah. Like be- besides the apocryphal uh, story about people having to eat rocks in order to, uh, <laughs> at, you know, prove their desire for sobriety, we haven't had a single temporaneous. Yeah, it was described. It's been introduced, the concept. Yeah. Well, we've had an establishing shot. Um. <laughs> anything else? I got. I got nothing. Yeah, there hasn't been that uh, much uh, like bad discourse online this week, so uh, I won't dip into that. And plus, we had a lot of stuff to talk about with the Zoom. With the Zoom, he guy he it didn't come around the way that he thought it would, but he kind of got it all. Yeah. About like our the experience, and it's a very interesting chapter to read. Yes, in regards to the last year, not not all people who write about speculative technology uh, nail it. Yes, <laughs> in their in the in the decades afterwards. So, shouts to him. Uh, all right, let's sign off. Say bye bye, Molly. Goodbye, bye bye, Molly. Bye bye.